There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Fresh doubt has been cast on the relaxing of most of the remaining COVID-19 restrictions on Irish society as planned on October 22nd. Minister for European Affairs Thomas Byrne, Sinn Féin TD McCarthy, Professor Kingston Mills and the Restaurants Association's Adrian Cummins are here to discuss. Britain's Brexit Minister David Frost will travel to Brussels tomorrow for talks with his European Union counterpart. And later, we review the big news stories of the week. Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. Ireland has one of the highest vaccine uptake rates in Europe, but despite that, we also have among the highest incidence of the virus. Well, here to discuss this is Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne, Sinn Féin TD McCarthy, Professor of Experimental Immunology, Kingston Mills, and via Skype, CEO of the Restaurants Association of Ireland, Adrian Cummins. Um, and of course, that all is potentially affecting the reopening, um, full reopening of society on October 22nd. So I want to come to you first on this, um, Kingston. Uh, essentially, people are wondering, how has it come to this? We had 2,066 cases yesterday, 1,627 cases today. But crucially, those hospital numbers are up and the ICU numbers are up. And all of that is, is playing into these fears that we won't be able to open up as planned next week. Yeah, I mean, it is an difficult to understand why Ireland is doing so badly, only second to the UK in, in Europe in terms of the number of cases. Um, I think the sort of good news is that the hospitalisation rates are still relatively low, although they are creeping up and they're getting at a stage now where if they were to increase further, especially with the onset of winter flus and other winter diseases, it could be a serious issue for the hospitals. I think there are a number of reasons why Ireland is doing badly. It's partly, um, I think, related to the UK and Northern Ireland, where the, the, you know, the, the, the restriction measures are much more relaxed and the whole um, you know, way of dealing with the pandemic in, in recent weeks and months hasn't been as stringent as it is in Ireland. So we've imported some of the issues from there. There's also a problem with the fact that we started vaccinating very early, which was good, of course, but the problem with that is that we're now seeing the effects of waning immunity. And I think it's really important that NIAC now take on board this and consider booster vaccinations, not just for the over 80, but for everybody over 60. And if you look at the statistics of those in hospital, more than 60% of those in hospital have been fully vaccinated. That's telling us that breakthrough infections that are resulting in hospitalisation are happening. And we need to boost that older population and we need to do it soon. Uh, just on the figures and the fact that we are again an outlier in Europe for the wrong reasons on this, is this a trend that will come to pass, that these spikes perhaps happened in other countries that reopened 
sooner than we did. And it's just the timing around all of this, given that we're coming into the winter months now, that we're seeing this rise. Because it was predicted um, when the Taoiseach announced this October 22nd date that we would see a peak around mid-October in terms of case numbers. I don't think anybody that was in the know is surprised at what is happening in terms of cases. That, that, that you know, the HSE said it as much. And in fact, they predicted even higher numbers than we have right now. So it isn't really a surprise. Um, I think what is worrying is that if we compare ourselves with a country like France, who has more than 10 times our population, they have roughly the same number of cases per day that we have, similar in Germany, right across Europe. All the case numbers are down. So it's really quite surprising that Ireland is so high in terms of case numbers and the UK compared with the rest of Europe. And you know, it is a combination of factors. It may be cyclical and that we may end up you know, you know, reducing here and then start increasing in other countries. We have to wait and see. But I think, I think the boosters are key to, the, to going forward. Um Thomas, just when, when we're hearing what Kingston is saying, that actually those figures, when we're talking about the numbers peaking out around mid-October, it's not too much of a surprise, but the government seemed really surprised by it all. I don't think the government's surprised. I mean, the, the figures were given by Neffet during the summer when the Delta variant became a thing as such. Um, and as Kingston said, much higher numbers were predicted uh, for this time. And we're lucky that the people have, you know, stuck to measures and kept numbers down, hospital numbers are down. they're alarmed, like the government's alarmed by what's happening. The Taoiseach Micheál Martin has said, um, you know, knuckle down, get back to basics. It just, we can't let our guard down here. And now calling into question the reopening next week, when if we knew those figures were going to be as high as they are now, that reopening was going to go ahead as planned anyway. Well, look, the vast majority of society and the economy is reopened. Yes, there are parts of it still to fully reopen and Certainly my sympathies and thoughts are with them. We want to make sure uh, that that can happen safely. I want to echo strongly uh, what Kingston says about booster vaccines. I know that NIAC are meeting next week and I certainly would be strongly encouraged if they had a, a positive view on booster vaccines beyond, of course, the over 80s and those in nursing homes that we've already started. But I think that's absolutely essential because we have to think of our healthcare workers. Many of them got vaccinated back in January, February uh, time. Uh, my wife's a nurse fully vaccinated since early February. Um, there's waning immunity there. We need to protect our health services. We need yeah. to make sure they're, they're fully vaccinated. You say most of society has reopened, but there's huge yeah. parts, sectors Absolutely. that haven't. I mean, look at, I mean, for example, um, the, the nightclub industry, yeah, sure. that hasn't reopened. Um, even when it comes to restaurants, and we'll be talking to Adrian Cummins, they have reopened, but only to a certain extent with all these measures in place around distancing and being vaccinated in, in order to dine inside. So well, there's a lot of curtailments. I mean, that's well, not even... I, getting I, onto I, all, all I, the indoor I, activities, weddings, other social sure, activities. Sure, and you're not wrong. And I have to say, I have, the one thing I would disagree with you on is that the idea that showing the vaccine certificate is a curtailment. I think that is the opposite of a curtailment, actually, and that it gives us the opportunity to reopen. I think uh, certainly most places are looking for the vaccination certificate. Some aren't. Quite frankly, I think, and I'm sure Adrian would agree with me, you are safer going into a venue where they check your vaccine cert. So I think we've got to get, I think that's what the teacher means by getting back to basics. That, that's a very important part of the equation here. There is a small percentage of people who aren't vaccinated. They have a much greater chance of entering hospital uh, and entering ICU despite the numbers. And I think they really need to seriously consider uh, 
whether they should get vaccinated now in the coming weeks. Vaccination centres are all still open, it's still available and they should okay. get vaccinated. Uh, Matt Carthy, there's a big push, we're hearing it, uh, all the messaging is around that 370,000 odd who haven't been vaccinated and, and urging them really to get vaccinated in this case. But isn't it really just a symptom of our health service, mm. the fact that we can't reopen as planned because of 400 people, 400 plus people in hospital. Nobody wants to see people in hospital, but nonetheless, it's a symptom of the fact that our health system can't actually cope in this instance. Yes, and just to begin, I want to join in all of those calls that are encouraging those people who aren't yet vaccinated to do so. Now, I'm not sure what proportion of them will listen to politicians at this stage asking them, but nevertheless, I think it is crucially important. We have seen that the vaccines work. The fact that we have um, come to a point now where you know, so much of society is opened up is down to people listening to the public health advice from day one. The truth of the matter is, since the very outset, the huge gaps within our health services have been exposed. And um, we'll all remember the drive to flatten the curve. It was because there was a recognition that our health services were um, historically under-resourced. It's amazing, I have to say, um, that this week there wasn't an additional acute bed um, um, above what had already been committed to deliver in the, in the budget. 19 additional ICU beds, not enough. Um, there is you know, fundamental deficiencies within our health services. We know that. We've seen all the stories in relation to this launch of care implementation. We have to, as a society, okay. learn the mistakes that were clearly um, exposed. I, ju I just want to get Kingston in on this, just on the issue of our, our hospital system. Is that um, the real issue here with regard to reopening? Yes, there are that number of people who remain unvaccinated fully um, or vaccinated at all. But in, in essence, you're going to have that in every society. But it's that the hospitals can't cope with this surge. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the issue is that 11% um, of our population is not vaccinated and 70% um, you know, of the people in ICUs are not vaccinated. So the risks of getting very severe disease going into ICU and dying are higher for the unvaccinated. And if the um, breakthrough infections um, continue, and no doubt they will increase, then we're going to put the system under further pressure. And with winter flus arriving, that's going to add to the problem. So I can foresee if we don't, uh, if, if we ease restrictions and the, the COVID cert, I completely agree, we've got to maintain the COVID cert for um, access to um, entertainment. And in fact, I would say we have to extend the use of the COVID cert to allow people into nightclubs, to allow people into lecture theatres in universities. If we had, we would currently have a situation where a student can go into a pub, has to show their COVID cert, but doesn't have to show it going into a lecture. And that is ridiculous. We need okay. to implement COVID So the vaccine mandate is, is something that should be looked at post October Absolutely. 22nd. It was promised we'd get rid of all these measures, but you believe they need to stay in place. And they need to be extended, in fact, in the case of the COVID cert. The use of the COVID cert to facilitate activity for people who are vaccinated. Okay. Um, Thomas, briefly. Yeah, I just agree with that last point. As, as Minister of European Affairs, I'm going to events in Brussels and France and places that the use of the COVID cert in those countries is actually far more extensive uh, than we have here ourselves. When I say about the health service, yes, it was under pressure and is under pressure, but that's the same in every country. There's not a single country in the world yeah, okay. uh, that wasn't trying to keep case okay. numbers down to keep pressure but off the But we do have system. higher, they've, they've hugely higher case numbers in the UK and, and everything's reopened.
I know, but they have they still have because huge they get, pressures. Because they've capacity. But they've, they've also ex well, they've capacity, but they've also accepted. They seem to have accepted at various points yeah. uh, that some deaths are acceptable. I mean, we're trying to keep people alive as best we can in okay. this country. Okay. Listen, I want to bring Adrian Cummins in here. Um, Adrian, from your point of view, eight days out, will any potential decision uh, not to reopen fully? What will that mean um, for restaurants and venues around the country? Well, for our hospitality across the entire country. Uh, it will have a devastating blow for us. Obviously, the nighttime economy industry that is closed for nearly 580 days, they want to get open. But we need to know what the situation is and how we can plan for this. We want to protect the nation's health. The, if we want, if the vac, uh, passport, COVID passport is extended, we'll, we accept that in order to keep businesses open and to allow businesses trade as normal. But we need to get back to normal pre-COVID trading environment, normal trading hours, okay. so that we can get staff fully back to work uh, and get our, our businesses operationalised in a viable capacity into the future. What about government engagement on this? Um, you know, as I said, we're just uh, a week out, essentially, from the reopening. Have you been talking to government officials about the, the, the thinking on this and, and what's, what could happen um, for restaurants and around those reopening plans? Well, we've been in this situation before uh, where we, we awaited the NEFIT uh, uh, guidelines. We called for early intervention by the government and a direct line of communication from the government. We want to have that opened now with immediate effect in terms of guidelines and how we can operate our businesses and what the government's thinking is around that. Businesses need to plan and prepare. For example, if you're going to allow uh, night, the nighttime economy industry to reopen. They need to know how many staff that need, are required for the capacity uh, of, the, of the venues and for the COVID search and how we're going to implement that. And I would say this, and the, the entire hospitality industry needs to dial back up now the inspection of COVID certs at the point of entry over the next number of weeks and months so that we protect the nation's health keep our businesses open, but get the entire hospitality open in full from next Friday, because we've got bookings in okay. and, and we need to start a trade in a normal trading environment now from now on. Okay, um, Matt, actually, I want to ask you, like this, this decision around the reopening, what, what would Sinn Féin's view on it be? Do you think they should push ahead with plans? Um, the promise was made, of course, to everybody that you know, we would reopen come October 22nd. Does that need to happen? And that promise was made by, by government and I think there is an obligation to find the route to reopen. It was um, you know, quite remarkable that today it was a real case of deja vu looking again at businesses talking about uncertainty, raising questions, doubts, um, doubts arising after they've made arrangements with regard to staff and stock and ticket sales. And now we're talking about um, a sector, particularly the entertainment sector, which... It, relies on forward planning. Um, so I think we need to try and find the route to, that ensures that we can reopen next week. Of course, we have to be guided then by the public health advice. Um, um, but and the government says that it wants to see more data before making that decision. Well, then I think the government should stop the speculation that we've seen over the past couple of days from the Taoiseach and the Taunasha and, and, and others. Let's, ask, let's get the data um, provided. Let's find out 
what it is that is causing the spikes that we're seeing, whether or not it's a seasonal blip or whether there's another explanation um, for it. Because as Kingston has said, 70% of the people who are in the ICU are unvaccinated. Yeah. They're not currently able to enter into restaurants and pubs. So clearly the source of their COVID isn't in those venues. So what is and what can we do to reduce those risks? Uh, Thomas, we know Neffert does an awful lot of modelling and they did in, in the run-up to reopening. So why haven't we got a, a clearer sense of what needs to be done now? Our recommendation. Well, I think we have a very clear sense of where we are. Well, we've we we've reopened. Here about next we've, Tuesday. We've, we've, we've re reopened most of the economy. We've never rushed into these decisions. We're very careful about it. As a result, actually, despite all the twists and turns in this and all of the tragedy which there has been, we have fared comparatively extremely well compared to many other countries around the world. Okay. Currently, one in, not, in, for resilience. Not right now in terms of case numbers. No, no, absolutely in terms of case numbers. But because we're so highly vaccinated, because the public by and large went along with that, our deaths are lower, our hospitalizations yeah. aren't what they would have been with these numbers and, six and, or eight and months so ago. And so many other countries have. So we're well, still in that situation that we're among the slowest to reopen fully. So I, in, I, in I, terms of that, in order to give that certainty to businesses, can an answer not be gotten this sooner? Um, can sectors be engaged with... I think, look, sector, sector, sectors, are being, sectors are being engaged with I, I understood That's not that, what Adrian Cummings Well, I had saying. understood that, that officials had been talking to officials. I'll, I'll accept what Adrian's saying, but I, I had understood that there were ongoing discussions. We see Catherine Martin has been meeting various uh, parts of the industry over recent weeks as well. Um, NEFIT will meet early next week. I also hope NIAC will make a decision on boosters. That'll be really key to this. And government has been very clear we want to do boosters. NIAC hasn't given that advice yet. We don't know what advice they'll give, but I'm convinced You're that... saying when you say NIAC will give advice on boosters, that's just not just boosters to the over 70s and, and those well, most vulnerable, we, I think which it's is over, happening now, over 80s, but, but yeah. across the board. Well, we'll see, see, we don't know what their advice is going to be. But yeah, I mean, it seems to be the experience in other countries that have gone for the third dose that it does give them more opportunities. Yeah, yeah. Just on the subject of, of the booster job, because Leo Vradker mentioned it today, saying you know, that they've done it in Israel and it's something that we should strongly consider now. There's a case for it. Um, do you think there should be a, a rollout across all age groups of the booster job at this point? Yeah, just, to, just to, to expand on the Israel data for a second first. I mean, Israel was the first country really in the world to have mass vaccination implemented and, and they were ahead of the rest. So their waning immunity is a bigger issue. And the uptake was reasonably good, not as good as in Ireland, but the, the numbers of cases went up dramatically up to a month ago and then to introduce the, the booster vaccine. And it, the, the, the efficacy had dropped as low as 50% and it went shooting back up to 95% estimate based on a publication published last week after the booster vaccination. So they really do work okay. in terms of pre preventing infection and, 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 and just inf not just disease, severe disease, but also infection. So booster vaccinations, first for the over 60s, okay. I would say, and then the younger population. Adrian, I want to ask you just, because I know you've um, been, yep. been talking about just with regard to um, reopening and extending the, the, the vaccinate, vaccine passport, that you would continue to do that and you would be in favour of that. Is that something that's been mentioned to you by government at this point? Have you been in active talks with them about p potential plans for next Friday? Well, Minister Martin's uh, department has not contacted us over the last 48 hours and we would hope the, the communication channels will open tomorrow morning at the earliest to start the communication around guidelines on how we can re reopen and extend our trading hours and operationalize our businesses. So for example, we need to look at the social distancing measures within our businesses. We need to look at capacity. 
We need to look at trading hours and we okay. need to, so that we can start to uh, ramp up our uh, staffing and our supply chain and all that's required right. to run our businesses from, from next okay. Friday. Uh, to answer your question, Claire, we're up for the, the, the COVID passport. We want to dial that back up across the country. It needs a national effort now in order to protect okay. the nation's health. And we've always taken public health advice all the time. Briefly, Thomas Byrne, I want to bring you in on that. Is that where the government's looking now, reopening, but only to people who are fully vaccinated? Well, certainly, if, if I'm asked my opinion, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think we need to continue that. Um, the Restaurant Association clearly have no difficulty with that either. Places that aren't checking, checking them at the moment need to check them. Uh, and don't go into a place if you're, if you're not checked because it's not going to be as safe. Okay, so it won't be a free-for-all next Friday, but... Well, but, but sorry, the, just be clear as well. There are no decisions made just yet. So, I mean, the, the Cabinet will make those decisions. Neffet will give their advice before that. That is an approach that, yes, we can't give immediate answers, you know, on, on nightly shows, unfortunately, but it is properly done based on evidence there. And that's, that's, that has served us well and has saved lives in this country over the last year and a half. OK, my thanks to Adrian and Kingston. Matt and Thomas will be staying with me. And after the break, further talks on protocol as scheduled for Brussels tomorrow. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. Now, the European Union has gone to the limits of what it can do to resolve the problems of post-Brexit trade in Northern Ireland, its ambassador to the UK has said, as Britain's Brexit minister, David Frost, will travel to Brussels tomorrow for talks with his European Union counterpart. Well, joining me now is Sky News political reporter Alan McGuinness. And Alan, tell us about the UK response to these EU proposals. Of course, David Frost was out issuing his red lines ahead of the publication of those proposals? Yeah, so I think it's it's fair to say it's been another uh, eventful week uh, when it comes to Brexit. But I think where we are now is that there is a clear path to uh, an agreement on, on, on changing the protocol. It might be a rocky or a shaky path, but there is a, a path nonetheless. Uh, whether we get there, of course, is an open question, but it seems like on the EU side and on the UK side, there is at least uh, a willingness uh, to try and to try and get there. Um, the EU feel they've made quite a significant offer to the UK, uh, reducing spot checks by about 80%, cutting the paperwork 
Uh, Maris Sefcovic has described the proposals as quite far-reaching and ambitious. Uh, Lord Frost made quite a, a pointed speech, I think it's fair to say, earlier this week on Tuesday in Lisbon, uh, reiterating the UK view, protocol isn't working, uh, it needs to change. So, David Frost heading to Brussels for, for those talks. What do you think is going to happen in the coming days? Because they both um, laid out um, their stall on this one, really. The EU saying we're going as far as we can go. And that remaining barrier when it comes to Britain about the European Court of Justice oversight on all these regulations. Yes, it, it feels like that's, that's kind of the, the, the big sticking point with all of this. It feels like the EU has, has moved quite a bit on on the checks and the paperwork, but the one thing that, that Lord Frost was was at pains to talk about was the, the role of the European Court of Justice and London's role, London's uh, issue is obviously with it being the, the final arbiter of issues that arise from the protocol and they want uh, international arbitration. Arbitration, And you mentioned um, the UK ambassador to EU saying, well, look, this this isn't going to happen. You, you can't you can't kind of cut the, cut the ECJ out of all of this. Um, and the EU have said yeah, this this would cut Northern Ireland off from the single market. So I think in the days to come, it would be very interesting to watch how how firm, how permanent a red line this is for the UK, or whether it will whether it will be uh, smudged uh, somewhat. I think it's we've had various uh, ministers on on Sky News in, in in recent days, and they have not necessarily gone as far as as Lord Frosting saying, look, this this is a, a definitive red line. They've They've said it's a it's a major issue, but they haven't gone necessarily gone quite as far as he has. So it will be be interesting to see if there's any any movement movement on that, whether there's any any backing down from um, okay. from either side. But yeah, that feels like the main sticking point. Okay, um, and briefly, Alan, just on Britain's global reputation of being able to do a deal and stick to that deal, it's certainly been criticised here in Ireland and around the EU. Eyes are looking on Britain on this one. How's it all going down, the fact that they make an arrangement and then Dominic Cummins even admitting that they were always going to break the protocol? Yes, there's been there's been quite a lot of uh, blowback and quite a lot of uh, reaction, in, in particular, as you say, to the, uh, to the Dominic uh, Cummings tweet. There's been, I think it's fair to say, a, a sort of relatively uh, rocky week in terms of UK-Ireland um, relations, uh, Simon Coveney and, and Lord Frost almost kind of trading trading barbs on on Twitter um, and also Leo, Leo Varadkar making the point in reaction to what Dominic Cummings said that well look if if the UK you, all these countries that are potentially doing trade deals with the UK um, if if they're going to not not potentially stick to their word and Dominic Cummings saying that look we, we just agreed to this and we were going to always going to um, try and change it once once we won the election um, yeah, that, that feels like it's been uh, it's been quite a quite quite a re quite a, revel a revelation. One of one of many from from Dominic Cummings so far. So it'd be interesting to see what what happens in the days and weeks to come of what the reaction is to that. All right, there we leave it. Alan McGuinness of Sky News. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you. Now, Fianna Fáil's Thomas Byrne and Sinn Féin's Matt Carthy are still here and I'm joined by News Talk Breakfast presenter Shane Coleman. Um, you're very welcome along, Shane. Uh, I want to come to you first on this, Thomas Byrne. This is really a big win for the UK. They shouted and it worked. Oh, I think it's a big win for Northern Ireland. I mean, the only reason the European Union is doing this really is to 
try and deal with the issues that have been addressed and the exact issues that have been addressed uh, by business and traders in Northern Ireland. That's a really important issue for them. Um, they... like the, the, you know, a deal was come to and essentially David Frost went and threw his toys out of the pram and the EU came up with another set of proposals that you know, our big turnaround on what was ori originally uh, arranged and, and signed up to. Well, the protocol is still there and the protocol is binding, legally binding. It's a question of how the protocol is operated by the European Union in practice. Uh, Mara Shepkovic himself went to Northern Ireland. He listened to business, listened to traders um, and got support for an approach around the European Union, which is obviously something very, very important to do and difficult to do at times as well. Uh, and what I'm hearing from European Union colleagues is that they're very concerned about the situation in Northern Ireland and they want to make sure that they went the extra mile uh, to make sure that we could satisfy the concerns in Northern Ireland, protect the peace, make sure there's no hard border on the island. Uh, and that's, that's been the clear objective. So this shouldn't be about who's winning, who's losing. It should be, are we protecting the peace in Northern Ireland? Are we making sure there's no hard border on the island? Okay. Um, are Sinn Féin happy with that, with the, the new proposals around this, um, the easing of checks and the arrangement that has been come to should um, Britain be prepared to agree to it? Yeah, so our position has always been we want as seamless as possible trade between all parts of Ireland and all parts of Britain. Um, obviously, that could only happen when both islands are in the European Union. Britain left, so any divergence that's there, any need for any regulatory measures, east-west, north-south, or whatever the case may be, is because of that decision um, to leave. I have to say... Um, I think Commissioner Seskovic's um, proposals in one way are calling the Britain's bluff, if you like, um, because we set out in very clear terms a mechanism by which all of the stated concerns that were raised by um, the British government and also by unionist parties have actually been addressed. Now, we've seen already an attempt to shift the goalposts with the introduction only this week of the ECJ. It's very interesting. No unionist politician mentioned the ECJ at all in terms of their difficulties um, with the protocol until David Frost did um, this week. So there is an attempt to shift, but I have to say, and this is, um, can almost be stated as a fact now, see when it comes to manufacturers, farmers, small businesses, communities across the north, they believe that the EU went further than they even expected or could have anticipated and they want this to be now locked in because this gives them and all of us an opportunity to actually restore a proper trading relationship and get on with business which is what they want Inter to do. Interesting though that one Shane on the European Court of Justice yes it, it didn't come mm -hmm. up as an issue before but we definitely heard um, Jeffrey Donaldson saying today that they're not happy yeah. with these new, pro these new proposals in, as in around that issue of, of oversight. Um, so it is going to be a political stumbling block. Oh, it is. Well, I mean, I heard, uh, read Newton Emerson today in the Irish Times. He says unionist politicians have been raising it for the last year. I have to admit, I don't remember them doing it. I didn't notice them doing it. Interesting, um, Matt says it's a, a game of bluff being played by the EU. That's grand when you're playing poker against a rational player. The problem is we're not playing poker with a rational player. Boris Johnson's quite happy to throw the whole pot at, at everything. And, and the big worry, and we don't know if this is the case, but the big worry is Boris Johnson w likes chaos, wants chaos, that this plays into his hands. He needs the bogeyman of the EU and that he's using Northern Ireland as a pawn in that. Now, we don't ultimately know if that is the case and maybe he'll blink ultimately. He did two years ago, thankfully. But it is, it is kind of frightening. Yeah, because the question is, is this all a big power play? Because Northern Ireland never came up during the Brexit campaign. No one cared oh, then. Boris Does Johnson, anyone really Boris care Johnson now? Boris Johnson doesn't care. 
about Northern Ireland. The one thing I do agree, or I do believe uh, from, um, uh, from Cummings, uh, whether or not all he's saying is true, but he's absolutely right. Boris Johnson hasn't a clue what the protocol is, doesn't understand it uh, as much as the man in the street. But he understands, uh, like Tory politicians understood 100 years ago, that Northern Ireland is a card you can play, and it can, it can play to his electoral advantage. Would you agree with that, Thomas Byrne? I want to believe that both governments are working together, or should be do working you together. That's the case. Do you Tom, think Thomas, can't Thomas can't say that. Thomas can't say that, I'm not. Look, there's a there's a discussion going on between the European Union. You, listen, and the Simon UK. Coveney came out and the, and he he came out on Twitter over the weekend and had a right spat and a right go. It wasn't very diplomatic. So, I mean, what do you think? I'm 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 going to leave the discussions that I think they should take place between Sepkovich and Frost, European Union, and the UK. We've the full backing of the European Union. We've utterly united political system in this country as well, which is really strong for us. And when we go to Europe, they've given us our full backing right around Europe. It's incredible yeah. uh, if we hear what people are saying. But on that issue, OK, so the European Courts of Justice is now... It's entirely, entirely theoretical, by the way. There are so few cases before the European Courts of Justice affecting the single market for goods, which, don't forget, is what the protocol effectively gives to Northern Ireland. There are so few cases across Europe there. This, this is not something that I could ever imagine arising okay, in Northern Ireland. So it's entirely theoretical. And then if that is resolved in some way, will there be something else? I can't say that. Point I wish. The, 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 that's, the the problem, that's the problem with see, this there's discussion. There's a cohort within the Tory party that are playing to a hardline unionist agenda. The difficulty is, speaking of bluffs, their agenda was always to put in place a hardening of the border in this country. What happened was that they ended up with a situation where Thankfully, the European Union came to a position that they recognised the dangers that that would provide economically, politically yeah. and socially to the entire island of Ireland and also to the uh, EU single market. Sorry. So that's where the protocol came from. That is why most people, from whatever background, North and South support yeah, it. We did hear um, it said today by uh, Mary Lou Macdonald that this, um, you know, the majority of people on this island... Um, are happy with the protocol and with the arrangement um, and we see DUP and, and unionist concerns be, being being set aside here um, by Matt and others and many others. Um, would, do you think they have a case that they have felt that it has been tough on them and these changes had to be made? Oh, I can understand why unionists don't like the protocol because he, politics follows economics and there is no doubt about it that uh, it, the, because of the protocol you are seeing a shift from trade from uh, east, uh, west east to north north south. I can and absolutely that's, and that's going pretty well. It is going, but it's going and arguably the single market. That's also pretty. Good arguably, too. if if you're a unionist, arguably going too well because, as I say, politics follows economics. I can understand why they don't uh, like it, and that's I do think it's important that Jeffrey Donaldson gets something. I think, unlike Boris Johnson, I think Jeffrey Donaldson actually does want to compromise here. But he has to watch his, his other side. He has to watch he isn't outflanked by others in the, in the unionist and, and loyalist community. So somehow we've got to get a deal that Geoffrey Donaldson uh, can sell to loyalist unionist voters. That's easier said than done. Though. What, what do you think? I'm, I referred there to, to Simon Coveney on Twitter um, at the weekend. What do you think of the way that went and that played out? Um, and subsequent comments then by Leo Varadkar about, you know, you know, can you really trust a partner who reneges on, on an arrangement um, in terms of finding a deal 
Um, I think, I think in, fairness to both, in fairness to both men, and I'm a fan of neither, um, they said what every Irish person with even the most cursory knowledge of our history would be able to tell you. You cannot trust a British government. Go back to the Limerick Treaty Stones, right up to the Good Friday Agreement. Once they negotiate a deal, they will automatically try to work to undo it. That is the history of the British government's engagements with Ireland. Um, the difficulty always that's arises... Not, that's not quite true, Ned. Uh, I, it, to be fair, uh, Anna, if you can go back to the Treaty of Limerick... Before before, the, before the, the ink was dry, it was broken and so on. Before Boris Johnson, uh, if you look at the last, say, 50 or 60 years, if the British government signed up to a deal, they, they generally, generally they stuck to it. They still haven't actually implemented the Good Friday Agreement, chain in huge swathes of parts in relation to legacy, in relation yeah. to uh, in relation to North Side bodies. I, 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 don't, I actually don't, for what it's worth, I don't think Simon Coveney, mm. I don't think it was wise to do what he did over the weekend. I never think tweeting is, is the best form of diplomacy. It is a form of megaphone diplomacy. I didn't think it was the smartest thing yeah. he could and Just to clarify, I'm it. not here to defend Fianna Gael, so... <laughs> <laughs> he just I'm did, actually. <laughs> yeah, quite impressive. I'm there, sure Matt. Simon Coveney's taken note. I'll say two things. I mean, Talking to European colleagues, I have to say this, though. There is genuine astonishment at the way Britain has dealt with this issue over the last year or so in terms of signing an agreement and then not complying with the terms of it. And people are just... They just kind of believe that, you know, a Western democracy like Britain, which is a trading country and talks about all the trade deals they want, they can't believe they're acting in this way. But I would say as well, while it's absolutely the case that the protocol has not been implemented in full by Britain, and there's so many issues, apart from the ones we're talking about tonight, so many issues that they haven't done... Frost said one thing, and I did agree with him, they, they have actually spent a lot of money in terms of trade or support up in, uh, up in Northern Ireland. So they have done some things as part of the protocol. It's not the case that they haven't done anything. Um, but we, we just want to make sure that everything is complied with because it comes as a package. And let's never forget, it's a huge benefit to Northern Ireland. OK, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Thomas Byrne and Matt Carthy. And after the break, we take a look at some of the biggest news stories of the week. Stay with us. Welcome back now. It's been a busy week in news and here with me in studio to talk about some of the biggest stories that make headlines this week is Irish Daily Star news reporter Laura Colgan, founder and CEO of Goss.ie, Alexandra Ryan and News Talk Breakfast presenter Shane Coleman is still with us. You're very welcome along. Um, a big story today. Obviously, we had the budget this week. That was a big one. Uh, but we also had own Keegan, Chief Executive of Dublin City Council, and when we talk about the housing crisis, really putting his foot in it and causing a lot of offence to many people um, around a letter he sent to UCD Students' Union saying that the Students' Union should become property developers if they want to help solve their accommodation crisis. We know he apologised. He said it was a sarcastic comment, but it really brought uh, heat on the subject and heat on him as well, Laura. Totally. I think, you know, Owen Keegan has been the chief executive of Dublin City Council for eight years now and so nobody should understand the scale of the housing crisis better than he does. I think, you know, he just kind of apologised and said his comment was sarcastic. I don't think anybody who's struggling with rent or is living in overcrowded conditions really saw the funny side of it. I think, uh, you know, he's facing calls to resign. He has said that he won't resign. But really, you know, I suppose you would kind of question the culture about whether, you know, he really is looking to maybe put an end to the, home, the housing crisis in Dublin. And I think, you know, as a representative of the local authority, he kind of owes it to the people, you know, living in the area to maybe treat them with a bit more care and compassion and realise that the housing crisis is, you know, not just a 
political issue. It you know, really is a day-to-day -day issue for people's lives and it's really not something to joke about. Ali, when people saw those comments, um, they were pretty shocked and surprised given the climate we're living in, given the rental crisis and the difficulties that students are facing, um, being able to go to college, being able to feed themselves through the college term and being able to find somewhere to actually sleep at night. Yeah, I mean, and also, if it was a sarcastic comment, now is not the time for sarcasm. I mean, I feel like the next thing that's going to come out is should homeless people learn how to construct their own homes? I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's not how you tackle a problem, telling a student's union to find a way to become property developers. It's actually been really shocking for me to see the stories that are happening at the moment. I know a lot of people that would be friends of college students, and in UL in particular, I know there's a few people literally living in Kilmurray Lodge Hotel right next to the university because they cannot afford accommodation. And then everyone would have seen that viral tweet a few weeks ago where one of the food banks had to close like they've never had such a demand before like this isn't one or two students are slightly struggling this is genuinely a really really serious problem again not the time for any sort of joke around it and it was a bit disappointing to see the budget come out and there to be absolutely no mention I know there's a few little things about young people but no mention about the crisis in terms of accommodation for students and I do think the housing crisis and student accommodation should be two very separate things because if we want our young people to be educated and go to third level education we have to help them get there there has to be a support system the rents should be way way less than what they are Shane what was the thinking about um, Keegan's comments there like why, why uh, listen, you have done that uh, come on I think we're getting we've lost a run for ourselves about this story I completely disagree with all of this it was a throwaway comment you probably shouldn't have made it but seriously, so what? Are, are, are we so fragile now that we can't take a sarcastic comment? I mean, he had a point. If the Students' Union felt so strongly about it, why didn't they object? Why didn't they actually object when they could have? Object uh, like, no. and becoming a property developer are two very separate things. No, so. but why didn't they? That, that, I think that's a fair question. But OK, he probably shouldn't have used that term. But are we really that sensitive that a, a sarcastic comment at the end of an uh, exchange of letters... If I was 19 in a hotel room sleeping there because I had nowhere to live, I would take offence. His, his, his point was, and it, maybe it was a slightly trite one, the way you make it sound with all this profiteering and everyone making huge amounts of money, so why don't you go into it yourself? He probably shouldn't have said it, but let's get real here. Are we seriously calling for him to resign over this? Is that where we are now? I mean, ministers were queuing up to give him a kicking uh, over the last few days. It's actually, it, it amazes me nowadays. Oh, it is open season on public servants. And like Owen Keegan, I don't agree with him on everything. I think he's a really, really fine public servant. And you know what? I'm not going to sit here and join in the people trampling all over him. Probably shouldn't have said it. Let's grow yeah, up. Yeah, I'm against cancel culture as well, but this is literally his job. So fair enough. I'm not saying he should resign, but come out and fix the problem, not send a letter with a line of sarcasm. But, but it's, it's well, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure it's Owen Keegan's job to fix the problem of student student accommodation. No, but to send a correspondence like that, I mean, his it, role was it the smartest thing he ever joke. did? No. Is it remotely a big deal? I would think not. I don't think it's a fireable offence, but. Something, something needs He's to happen. He's apologised And well. I do okay. feel very sorry for students right now. It's crazy. Yeah. Look, it's, it has highlighted the crisis that students are facing and actually renters right around the country as well, as has arguably the Fiverr budget, because many said that what was offered in the budget offered nothing around the big crisis of our day, and that's, uh, that's housing, and that's um, you know, what can be offered to renters. How do you think that this week's budget went down, Laura? How do you think it was received? Because we've... <laughs> We have moved on a little from it now, haven't we? And it's only a couple of days old. A little bit. I mean, I don't think anybody thinks they'll be laughing all the way to the bank after this week's budget. Um, you know, the 
I suppose they were trying to, the government was trying to pitch this as a giveaway budget, you know, at least a fiver for everybody. Um, but, you know, a fiver is not going to get anybody very far. And I think the issue of carbon taxes has really come to the fore with this. Um, any gains that anybody would have made from the budget is going to be totally negated by the carbon tax, whether that's, you know, filling the car full of petrol or their energy bills. Even things like the, the remote working relief, you know, the average worker will be about 200 quid off, better off per year if they can avail of that. But, you know, sure, they'll end up paying that again in energy bills. So, you know, nobody is going to really be better off after this. And the big question is, there, there was an opportunity, arguably, for the government to have a big impact budget, um, the coalition working together to was coming up with something. I, I'm, I'm not sure there was. They didn't? I'm not sure there was, really. I mean, they, they had a limited enough pot of money uh, to, to, to give out. And politics is such now you can't leave any group out now that's the kind of politics of today you've got to like Michal Martin said it's not going to be one for everyone in the audience of course it was going to be people one people are for seeing through that a bit now because you yeah, know the fiver that was given to the pensioners and to social welfare recipients and a bit here and a bit there and a lot of the commentary was actually you know what I I or that the tax breaks that half a billion euro in tax breaks it was like well maybe that money could go into providing even more in the way of childcare actually bringing the cost down for parents See, you say that but then you don't do that. You don't bring in those measures and you're absolutely hammered for doing it. And one thing we know about the Irish electors, they like to be bought. They like goodies. They like tax cuts. They like social welfare increases. That is... They like childcare. The, they like yeah, housing. But they, I mean, I suppose, and the problem is they're trying to do everything. I'm not sure you can do everything. Funny enough, Claire, I think the one measure that will be remembered uh, in the same way Charlie Hawhey was remembered for giving free transport uh, back in 1969 or whatever it was, is the half-price uh, student uh, travel. I actually think that's one that could become very popular. I'm not saying it's going to turn all these okay. young voters from Sinn Féin to Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, but I think it will be remembered. OK, another one that will be remembered is the free contraception for 17 to 25-year-olds. Yes. Uh, um, Ali, like the, the government are saying on this one, yes, we would like to extend it more, Stephen Donnelly saying that today, but it is first big step in the right direction. You'd agree? Amazing step. I mean, we're one of the last countries in Europe to do it. Like, I know so many people that when they go on holidays to Spain, France, they literally stock up on the contraceptive because it's literally cost price. It's a couple of euro over there. It's insane to think they come home and... The problem is, and we're talking about all these issues, and I know, Shane, you're saying, like, you know, get over it, but the problem is, if the student who's sleeping on, in a hotel who can't afford to get rent, can she afford to get the contraceptive pill? You know, like, that's why th that is really important, but also slightly funny that it's only, you know, to 25. Women don't stop having sex at 25. They don't all settle down. Although I did, see, I did see a tweet from Oliver Callan um, in which he said, well, it's from 17 to 25, because at the age of 25, you move back in with your parents <laughs> well, because you have to afford a home and you live there forever. But I I think it's a really good step. In general, I think anything to do with sexual health should be free, and it is in a lot of other countries. Okay. We are very behind on that. Shane, your thoughts on it? Oh, I know I'm going to alienate... Everything I say tonight is going to alienate the keyboard warriors sitting at home, but I, I actually don't agree. I don't agree with the idea of universal benefits. I, I actually think... My, my view on these things is you target them to the people you need them. I don't believe somebody who's making 60 or 70 grand a year... Uh, Hang on, 17 to 25-year-olds. Well, some 25-year-olds are making good money. They're making how much? 50 oh, what? You're saying there's no 25-year-olds make a, well, a teacher, a well, primary school woman? Sorry, a primary school teacher, for example, will make that money. A nurse will make good money, 35 to 40 grand. I don't think the state should be buying everything for them. I think in this country we think there's a magic money tree somewhere that's going to pay for absolutely everything. Who actually pays for it in the end? Laura, your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I think Shane is forgetting, you know, it's a, a women's health package. It's not only a sexual health package. There's also things to, you know, things like a fund for sanitary products to tackle period poverty and things like that. So I think, you know, the free contraception is what everyone's thinking about, but it's actually a women's health package and it's long overdue. And like Ali said, you know, women have these issues long after the age of 25. So it's a first step and long may it continue. I take it you wouldn't be in favour of it going beyond the age of 25 and for other people and others who can't afford it's contraception. Not, it's, not, it's not the fact that it's about women's health or uh, this specific issue. I just don't believe, and the same with child benefit, I don't believe it universal, in universal social. I think people who are well off don't need that help in the state. And I think you're actually taking from the people who do need it when you do things like that, however popular, however right on, however trendy they are. Okay, Laura, big one, um, decisions for government to make around yes. those COVID figures and the issue of reopening next week. Uh, what way do you think it's, it's going to move over the weekend and into next week when it comes to that big decision? You know, I, I think there's a big fear of going back into a lockdown. Um, you know, really the argument now is centering on vaccination. We have one of the highest vaccination rates in Europe, 92% of adults are, but there's about 370,000 adults who, for whatever reason, have chosen not to get vaccinated. That is where kind of the issue is. I think this discussion around um, potential further lockdowns or extending vaccine passports, it's really kind of maybe targeting those people and pushing them to take the vaccine if it's available to them. Um, I, I, I don't think the prospect of going back into lockdown is real. I think it's a push for vaccinations. Okay, and quickly to finish on, big news. Um, Will, uh, Star Trek actor William Shatner heading into space. It's a big moment, age I 90. Know. And he was incredibly emotional about it. I'm, nice news story. I'm such a Star Trek fan as well. Like I grew up literally watching him and there's a video clip of him talking to Jeff Bezos being like, this is the most profound moment in my life. It's such like a full circle moment for him. The fact that that's how he kind of came to fame and there he is lifting off to space. I mean, honestly, based on this discussion, I want to be in the next rocket out of here as well. <laughs> okay, that is it from us. My thanks. Thanks to Laura, to Shane and Ali. Uh, our programme is available as a podcast. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning, but from all the late team here, good night. Take care. Originals podcast series. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gays wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com